If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. It's January 31st. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Wright Report, your daily news podcast. I've got a series of updates for you this morning from previous briefs that are still shaping America and the world. First up, the latest on that Chinese hack that we discussed back on July 31st. It involves some malware that was embedded in our critical infrastructure. Some good news to tell you about. Second, we have long talked about China's theft of our intellectual property. Plus, how do we bring our manufacturing base back home? Well, I've got Donald Trump's plan on how he wants to do that. Let's see if you agree. Third, on June 13th, I told you about how the U.S. government is buying your online life through something called your digital exhaust. I've got an update for you with a Democrat senator who says he has had quite enough of the U.S. government trying to break the law or violate the Constitution. Fourth, back in May and again in August, I briefed you on how Oregon's plan to decriminalize hard drugs was not going well. I've got an update on how Democrats in the Beaver State are now backpedaling on their failed idea. Finally, an update for you on the briefs that I gave you back on January 8th about Somaliland. But this update involves one of their native daughters, a socialist and U.S. representative named Elon Omar. We are going to talk about who this gal is, the new scandal that she is involved in, plus what it means for America. But first, let's get to that first update of the morning. We begin with the latest about a brief that I gave you back on July 31st and then again on December 12th involving a pretty alarming Chinese cyber attack against some of our critical infrastructure. To refresh our memories on this, there were some Chinese state hackers with a group that's called Volt Typhoon. They had embedded their very new aggressive computer virus inside of critical systems like water, power, and communication infrastructure. The initial concern back this summer was that it was targeting mostly U.S. military bases, both at home and abroad, but especially out in the Pacific. But then in December, we learned that it was far worse than that. Uh, the Chinese had included targets here in the homeland, including a water utility in at least Hawaii, a major port on the West Coast, at least one oil and gas pipeline, the entire electric grid of Texas, plus various U.S. rail systems, amongst others. As you might recall, the goal of these Chinese hacks and this malware was to quietly embed itself as a sort of a light switch of sorts that Beijing could flip on or off and ultimately shut down modern American life. And they would do that in the hours just before or after they invaded Taiwan. The goal would be to sow chaos or panic in our country such that a U.S. president would be too busy dealing with all the anarchy to help Taiwan. So that is what we have been tracking since July and into December. Now I offer you this update from Reuters News Service. The FBI has remotely accessed all known compromised systems and disabled this Chinese virus or malware. 
Additionally, my sources say that the uh, Department of Justice had to actually get permission to do it in this particular case because some of the victims didn't know that they were compromised or they didn't want to actually cooperate. A judge ruled that the Bureau could remotely defuse this Chinese threat regardless. We are also learning this this morning. The Chinese were able to be so successful with this particular malware because they started by hacking some very simple gadgets. So, for instance, they would begin by hacking a security camera on a house, let's say. But that house was physically nearby a different target, the ultimate target, like a military base or utility system. Well, at that point, once they had control of that little security camera, they would then electronically leapfrog to that other target, the real target. But to the IT systems or teams, I should say, that were monitoring this activity, well, apparently these guys found this behavior a little bit less alerting because it wasn't coming from China or somewhere abroad. Well, the point is, ladies and gentlemen, that this Chinese Volta Typhoon threat has been largely neutralized, and that is certainly good. That said, there is no finish line to this. As Raiders News reports, these hackers are adjusting their approach, looking for some new vulnerabilities. So those are the latest facts and data this morning. Let me now offer you my quick analysis and opinion. First, I suspect that this news is being leaked to us by the FBI, and they're doing so on purpose. It is a public message, not just to us, but really to Beijing, that we know what they're doing, we know how they're doing it, and that we are on the hunt for whatever else they might throw at us. And that might provide some assistance or throw off the Chinese a bit, slow them down. But nevertheless, and second, China knows what the FBI is doing here, and they're still not going to stop. And that is because President Xi wants the capacity to neuter this country in the first 24 or 48 hours after he decides to invade Taiwan. He wants to find a way for us to engage in riots and panic and civil unrest as he cyber attacks or attacks Taiwan. So that means we've got some good and bad news. The good news is that, well, it appears as though in the FBI, there are still some good people there doing some good work. The bad news is these good guys have to be right 100% of the time to find all of those cyber threats. Because whatever they miss, that could spell disaster for this country. And that is impossible, of course. And so that is why I have prepared myself and my home to ride out any civil unrest for a week or so. I still encourage you to do the same because my assessment continues to be that Mr. Xi will try to take Taiwan within the next 24 months. I'll keep you posted. And with that, we pivot to our second update of the morning. And for this, we stay on the topic of China with an update about how to do two very important things. First, how can we possibly claw back the upwards of $600 billion in theft that Beijing tapes from uh, various U.S. companies each year through things like stealing our intellectual property? Second, how do we reshore or bring back our manufacturing industries that moved to China over the past 20 years. Well, as we think about options, about how to do those things, there is one presidential candidate who is offering us part of the solution, and that is former President Donald Trump. And here is his plan. In one simple word, tariffs. He is promising to remove China from America's list of most favored nations for our trade. China, for what it's worth, got that back in the year 2000. But if Trump gets reelected, no longer will that be the case. And that would then result in about a 40% increase in tariffs 
and all sorts of products coming out of China. But that is not all. Privately, Mr. Trump is saying that he wants to push that 40% number of tariffs up a little bit further to 60%. He and his team anticipate that, yes, the Chinese would then respond to this trade war with equal increases on tariffs on American goods, especially agricultural products. And that is why Mr. Trump will then provide aid to America's farmers and ranchers as compensation. Critics say that this idea of Mr. Trump's would be terrible news for consumers. U.S. manufacturers and retailers would almost certainly pass down these tariff costs to folks like you and me. And that may or may not be true, depending on how much the tariff costs these companies eventually absorb, or whether they also have supply chains in other countries beyond China in places like, say, Vietnam or Mexico or back here in America. And that's the goal to push our supply chains away from the communists in Beijing, knowing that, yes, there would be pain up front as that transition got underway. For the record, the current White House and Mr. Joe Biden do share some of Mr. Trump's beliefs about tariffs. They've decided to keep about $300 billion in tariffs that Mr. Trump slapped on China a number of years ago. Axios News reports that the Biden White House will continue to do that, Mostly, though, because the Biden campaign does not want to look weak on China during an election year. Also, apparently, he doesn't want to lose the support of unions, which tend to back these tariffs, which, of course, favor U.S.-based manufacturing. So those are the quick updates regarding this ongoing story about how to best take on the Chinese, at least economically. Let me now pivot to my analysis and opinion. So let's talk first about some quick history. Back in 2020, the Chinese government made a deal with then-President Trump to buy more American goods. Since then, what the data show is that they have bought nothing, no material increases based on what they promised, right? Zero. Although, I'll tell you, that is not a huge shock, is it? China makes all sorts of promises all the time, from economic to cooperation about fentanyl, and then they ultimately do nothing. So Trump is effectively saying, okay, Time to increase the pressure on these folks in Beijing, and that does seem reasonable. Although I should tell you, this pressure goes beyond just the Chinese. As reported by the New York Times and based on some interviews with Mr. Trump's team, he also wants to slap some 10% of tariffs on all imports from all countries. So the goal would be to make America more self-reliant and bring home our companies that for the past 30 years have gone to places like Mexico or beyond. Critics to this approach say that this is absolutely crazy. It will drive up costs and push us probably into a recession. And to be fair, this criticism is certainly worth further exploration, and we will do so in future episodes. But in the meantime, well, at least now you have another piece of information to consider as you decide whether or not to vote for Mr. Trump in the primaries or next November. And with that, let's take our first break of the morning. For subscribers listening at rightreport.substack.com, thank you. It is you and your financial support that are keeping this podcast alive. Meanwhile, for my other loyal listeners, I thank you as well. And I encourage you to do your part this morning and support the companies that support me. You will hear about them shortly. We'll be right back. 
Hey everybody, Brian here. I want to tell you about a product that's important to me, but first, something that you might not know. Of the 100 prescription drugs that Americans use most, 83 are sourced from abroad, and virtually all of it comes from either China or India. And I think that that is absolutely awful. And so too do the folks at arcseedkits.com. They provide heirloom seeds that can grow medicinal herbs year after year for a whole host of ailments from anxiety to sleeplessness to topical pain. But beyond medicines, their all-in-one seed kit also gets you 65 varieties of fruits and vegetables from carrots to tomatoes, onions to peppers. And that, my friends, is food security. And that's important because I believe that the likelihood of a war between China and the United States is growing. And that means that we need to be prepared to protect ourselves and our families. And that is why I believe, my friends, in arcseedkits.com. Those are heirloom seeds that can be used year after year for whatever the future might hold. So go to arcseedkits.com, enter that promo code of right like my last name, and then you will get 10% off. So yes, go to arcseedkits.com today. You will not regret this investment. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our news this morning with more updates from stories that continue to shape our world. I next take us back to June 13th. That is when I briefed you on this next alarming fact. The U.S. government, including agencies like the NSA, the CIA, and the FBI, are buying massive amounts of America's personal data through private companies. The data are often called digital exhaust. It's the Digital information that you leave behind as you travel throughout your lives on your phones, computers, cars, and all sorts of internet-connected gadgets. So, to refresh our memories exactly on how this works, private companies monitor all of your devices, and they collect on what you say, what you buy, what you search for, when you do it, where you do it, and how you do it. And that information, or your digital exhaust, my goodness, it is worth a lot of money to the people who are collecting it, called data brokers. Their industry peddles your information to various buyers for upwards of $250 billion a year, based on some estimates. Well, as it turns out, some of those buyers are law enforcement agencies with the U.S. government. That shouldn't happen, though. They shouldn't be the buyers of your digital exhaust, because normally they need to get a court order or a warrant to get that kind of personal information about you. Otherwise, it is at least a violation of the Fourth Amendment regarding unlawful searches and seizures. But because it was first vacuumed up by a private company and not the government, these agencies believe that, well, they can wiggle through, circumvent the law, maybe the Constitution, and just buy it. Well, back in June, I told you that the FBI promised that they would not do that anymore that they would only get your digital exhaust through proper uh, court processes or legal courtrooms and such. But that promise left out other agencies like the NSA. And that led longtime privacy advocates like Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon to ask some pretty tough questions about exactly what they collect regarding this digital exhaust and how. And that takes us to the update. Late last week, the National Security Administration, or NSA, admitted that, yes, they do buy this private digital exhaust, and they do so without a court order. The NSA, though, insisted that the information has significant value for national security and their cybersecurity missions, and they only use this stuff sparingly. 
Oregon Senator Ron Wyden, though, was not impressed with that answer. In response, he is now going to block the newly nominated NSA director from ever taking that position until this gets resolved, which he said will be in favor of privacy rights for all Americans. So those are the latest facts and data about how your government is, well, spying on you in likely violation of the Constitution, the law, or just a whisker from it. Let me offer you now my analysis and opinion. Well, I tip my hat to Senator Wyden. He is one of the very few Democrats on Capitol Hill who has consistently understood what is at stake here and why the administrative state or deep state can and does get out of control. And I have a confession for you. In years gone by, I was much more likely to give the benefit of the doubt to people that the NSA or FBI or CIA, I believe that they would do the right thing as they would collect this personal data or digital exhaust and only use it for very proper investigations. But no longer. In fact, after the special counsel reports into the FBI's Trump-Russia investigation, which we now know as the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, I don't trust our federal government or those agencies at all. So once again, I do offer kudos to Senator Wyden on this. And I'll tell you, just to lift us all up this morning, if you feel so moved, drop his office a line of thanks. So go to Senate.gov, track down his office, and you can send him an email or leave him a voicemail. And I'm pretty sure that Senator Wyden and his folks would appreciate some uh, bipartisan support. Next up, and speaking of the Beaver State, let's stay out west in what is my home state of Oregon for one more update. Back on May 24th and again on August 29th, I shared with you a grand experiment that voters in the state of Oregon decided to try back in the year 2020. They decided to legalize hard drugs. Oregon voters passed something called Measure 110. That said, that if you are caught with relatively small amounts of drugs, including the hard stuff like cocaine, heroin, other drugs, you cannot be arrested. Instead, you get the equivalent of a traffic ticket, a $100 fine, which actually you don't have to pay. You just got to call a 1-800 number and go through a screening cross, uh, process for drug addiction and possible treatment. The biggest proponent of this Measure 110 was a group called the Drug Policy Alliance. It's an organization that is largely bankrolled by a fellow that you might know. His name is George Soros. Mr. Soros also had some friends to help him out, including a, another guy you might know of. It's Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, Priscilla. Well, three years later or so, after these billionaires used Oregon as a Petri dish for their drug experiment, the results are in, and as I shared with you, they are a disaster First, the state of Oregon now has one of the highest drug rates in the country, if not the highest. Next, we know that only 1% of drug addicts in Oregon sought help at these various drug rehab centers. The rest, 99%, continued to abuse drugs. And that led to the third and horrible and frankly predictable consequence, fatal overdoses. They are now up 61%. Now, some folks contest some of these numbers, but nevertheless, the voters of Oregon do not. They have had enough. I shared polling with you that about 56% of voters in that state say that they want an immediate repeal of this law. Well, that takes us to the update. Last week, Democrats in Oregon introduced a new bill that would roll back many parts of Measure 110. 
it would now be a crime, again, to possess hard drugs, as the AP reports. It would also enable police to confiscate these drugs, to arrest the addicts, and crack down on their use of sidewalks and parks. It would also make it easier to prosecute the drug dealers. As expected, some radical leftists who are backed by George Soros and other groups are absolutely outraged by this move. That includes people like Ms. Tara Hurst. She is part of the Soros-backed Health Justice Recovery Alliance. She said that this bill not only is wrong policy, but it is also racist. Quote, we tried to change a racist system with this Measure 110, but now it's snapping back. End quote. Well, be that as it may, the racists in Oregon apparently disagree, which, by the way, they say they're not racist. They're just trying to fix a mistake that they made. Oregon's legislature intends to do just that starting at some point, probably next week. The legislature has 35 days to consider this new bill, which Democrat leaders say they will do. So those are the facts and data this morning on what we can say is Oregon's failed experiment about drugs. Let me pivot now to my analysis and opinion. And let us remind ourselves of why this story impacts you, even if you are not in Oregon. George Soros and Mark Zuckerberg want to do this legalize drugs experiment all across this country. Their organization, which again is called the Drug Policy Alliance, has said that their plan is to replicate the Oregon experiment in all 50 states. So that certainly includes you. So you should know that these folks are very dedicated to this cause, and boy, oh boy, they got a lot of money to do it. So be prepared if you don't like this idea. Second, I want to give you an update that's related on the issue of drug treatment. The Wall Street Journal recently flagged this next startling statistic. 95% of drug and alcohol addicts said that they would not seek treatment because they didn't think they needed it. Meanwhile, for those addicts that do seek treatment, the relapse rate is virtually everyone by year one following treatment. And I'll tell you, for anyone who has a friend or a loved one who has struggled with addiction, you know that story all too well. But here's what the journal found. For addicts that were forced into long-term recovery, which lasted about 18 months in a facility, well, those addicts were much less likely to use drugs and alcohol. The drugs, by the way, included things like heroin. In other words, forced recovery broke the cycle when an addict couldn't break their habit. Critics say that this forced recovery in a facility that is not of one's choosing, well, that takes us down a very scary path of involuntary hospitalization or in mental institutions, and those places steal people's liberty, all at the whim of a government or some judge. And that is certainly fair, although supporters say, what kind of life does an addict have anyway? Are they really enjoying their liberty? And aren't they putting the rest of us and our liberties at risk with their continued addictions? Well, at any rate, it is a very important debate, and I would love to hear what you think. Please go on Substack and offer me your thoughts. In the meantime, I will be watching this Oregon bill and what comes of it, because as ever, this experiment out west I think will help us understand how to tackle this scourge of drug and booze addictions. And that is true no matter where we live. It is also important this morning as we watch these various groups all around the country who are trying to change our communities, even when they don't live in them. From my perspective, that is wrong. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's episode of The Right Report. But I've got one more thing before I let you go. 
We'll be right back. Folks, for over 230 years, my family of farmers and ranchers have worked the fields and logged the mountains of America. And while doing it, we've come up with a family motto. We call it Right Country. It's about creating a family and community that take pride in things like hard work, good living, and love of the nation. And fueling that family motto each morning is our new daily tradition. It's a cup of Right Country coffee. I am so proud to introduce this to you. It's been created by my favorite company, the one and only Wacker Coffee Company. It has a, a natural taste of chocolate, almonds, brown sugar, although I should tell you, nothing has been added to this. That is just how the beans properly taste when properly roasted. And that is why it has become my family's daily workhorse, whether that be in the fields or in the mountains or at the office. So do yourself a favor. Go to WackerCoffeeCo.com. That's W-A-C-K-E-R, WackerCoffeeCo.com. And look for the Right Country Blend. For my paid subscribers, you will get 15% off your order. Just use the promo code that you will find in my daily Substack post. But whether you are a paid subscriber or not, you gotta taste my family's personal roast. Taste Right Country from WackerCoffeeCo.com. And as you do, my friends, think of me. And know that you are part of my family. You are part of Right Country. Welcome back to The Right Report with one more thing before I let you go. It is a personal reflection today based on a brief that I gave you back on January 8th. It was about a place uh, that we discussed on January 8th called Somaliland. That is on the Horn of Africa. It's a breakaway territory that is technically a part of the country of Somalia, but they consider themselves to be independent. Unfortunately, no other nations in the world do, but they sure do. Well, as I shared with you a few weeks ago, the neighboring country of Ethiopia just signed a deal with this Somali land, and it gave them access to the Red Sea, which was a pretty big deal for Ethiopia. They are landlocked. But the leaders in Somalia's capital of Mogadishu say that this deal is null and void because Somaliland is a province and it is under the authority or control of the capital, not its own nation. Well, as that debate continues this morning, Somalis living all around the world have gotten pretty riled up about this. And that includes one very infamous Somali woman named Elon Omar. She's a current representative from Minnesota in the House of Representatives. Over the past week, she has said some pretty remarkable things about Somalia and her allegiance to that country versus the United States, which we will discuss in just a second. But before we do, we need to understand who this gal is so we can talk about why we should care. So here's what we know. Miss Omar was born in Mogadishu and her mother died at a pretty young age, but her father who raised her was very interesting. His name was Noor Omar Mohammed. Local press in Minnesota confirm that he was a senior colonel in the Somali army that at the time was led by a radical Marxist dictator. So the point is that Mr. Noor could have not achieved that rank without being acceptable to that Marxist regime. But the dictator was then overthrown. That was in the year 1991. As you would expect, uh, Mr. Noor immediately fled with his family, and that would include the young Elon Omar, they left to the country of Kenya, where they stayed in a refugee camp. The family was then given asylum to the United States in 1995. Two years later, the family moved to Minneapolis, and that city had been radically changed by that time by Somali refugees and others, all because they moved there as word spread around the world 
that the meatpacking plants in Minnesota needed cheap labor. So Somalis and others showed up in mass, and that forever changed the state of Minnesota. Because I'll tell you, amongst the many people who arrived in Minnesota was this Mr. Noor, who had these radical leftist Marxist ideologies. And that trickled down into local and state politics, and as you would guess, into the minds of people like his daughter, Elon Omar. Well, she graduated from high school in the Minneapolis area, and then about a year later, she sought a license to marry a man named Ahmed Hirsi. Although they didn't actually marry, they did have three children, though. But that's where things start to get a little bit murky and very strange. According to the Star Tribune, which is the major newspaper that serves Minneapolis, Elan Omar split up with Mr. Hersey, her husband, and instead married a different man. This was in 2009. And his name is Ahmed Noor Saeed Elmi. So Mr. Elmi and she were married for about two years before they split up and she went back to her old husband. But who was this Mr. Elmi that she was married to for two years? Well, that is a mystery. Miss Omar refuses to give any details, and that is why the Star Tribune investigated, because they had heard rumors that actually Mr. Elmi was her brother, and they got married so he could get U.S. citizenship, which would be immigration fraud. Well, after this investigation, the Star Tribune reporters and their editor-in-chief commented that they could not get to the bottom of this story because of, well, two reasons, really. First, there was a lack of Somali records, especially birth records. And second, Miss Omar gave inconsistent answers or outright falsehoods. Well, as you would guess, Miss Omar denies ever marrying her brother. She says it is just a big conservative conspiracy theory. But the FBI took this allegation seriously enough that they launched an investigation in at least the year 2000, Although allegedly the statute of limitations had run out and the U.S. Attorney's Office then shut that investigation down. So that is what we know and don't know about this very strange case and this very odd person of Elon Omar and her Marxist family. So with that as background, we now have this. Over the weekend, video surfaced from a speech that Ms. Omar delivered to her Somali constituents in Minneapolis She was talking about that Somaliland deal with Ethiopia, and she said that she was outraged and that she was, quote, Somalian first and Muslim second, end quote. She then added that she was, quote, here to protect the interests of Somalia from inside the U.S. system, end quote. Finally, she said this, quote, the U.S. government will do what we ask it to do. We live in this country, we are taxpayers in this country, and while I am in Congress, no one will take Somalia's sea, end quote. Well, that hyper-focus on being Somalia first, with absolutely no mention of America or being American first, that set off outrage, most especially amongst Republicans in D.C. and beyond. For example, Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis said that he wants this gal expelled from the House and deported from the United States. She can go back to Somalia if she loves it that much, is his point, and appears to be that loyal. So those are the facts and data on this developing story. But now the question is, what do you think? What is your analysis and opinion? Well, as you think about that and you share it with me on Substack, here's what's striking to me. 
I think what this case shows is that this country has let people in as asylum seekers who are not very good people. And that includes likely Marxists, including Miss Omar's father. And when we have done this, these people forever change our communities like Minneapolis or our states like Minnesota, but ultimately the United States. Because, my friends, we are doing this all throughout the country. We are allowing these people in and they are going everywhere. And that is bad because they are here not because they love America or our history or the Constitution. In fact, Elon Omar has said that she hates much of America. And she has also admitted that she is a Marxist, just like her father. And that's why this case of Elon Omar, to me, is yet one more painful example of how this country has gone absolutely sideways because at some point, our elites in D.C. decided that we really should let in all of the tired and poor and huddled masses yearning to breathe free. But as we did that, we forgot something. We forgot to ask if these people actually like this country or if instead they are invested in trying to find ways to change it or serve their home countries by serving in the U.S. Congress. And that, to me, is what has to change. That is, if we want to save this country for the people who actually are here to love it. More to come on this, but in the meantime, do send me your thoughts. As ever, you can do this at rightreport.substack.com. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude your morning brief. As always, I will see you tomorrow, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day.